0: Amen. Uh, So grateful uh, that we have hope that goes beyond like circumstances and situations uh, that we're in. Uh, Thank you for continuing to pray for each other. Uh, I've been praying for Steve Smuck as he was recently diagnosed with ALS, and you know, confirmed at his appointment this week uh, that there's no cure for this. Here's medically speaking, what happens: things just get worse, Uh, and so, so no. He desires to heal and reverse that, though medically speaking it seems hopeless. Uh, We know uh, our hope and Steve's hope is in the one who not only can heal physically, and whether he does that or not, we know that we long for the second coming of Jesus where all who are in Christ receive a new body with no sickness anymore. And so our hope is in him. It's good to have a hope that goes beyond our circumstances in the here and now because they're not always as we desire. As we open up the Bible today, I'll go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 6. Judges, the seventh book in the Bible, started here uh, last week, and I'm looking forward to being in here for a couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. I'm thinking probably, like me, many of you are thankful to God for a good story well told. Maybe as these days get... Shorter, there's more darkness. Maybe it's good for you to just spend some time reading a good story in a book. Maybe you're watching a good story uh, on the TV or on a movie, something like that. But we love good stories well told. And for years, people have turned to places like Disney to tell good stories well. Most of those Disney movies have featured a romantic element Cinderella and the Prince, Aladdin and Jasmine. But our world is getting stranger all the time, and so is Disney. So in Disney's newest film, maybe aptly entitled Strange World, the featured romantic element is a teenage boy who has a crush on another teenage boy. I'm concerned that this generation growing up in our strange sin-sick world that promotes everything as good except what God says is good, that is the creation of male and female, His design for marriage. I'm concerned for this generation. When we think of what's going on in the world out there, we have good reason to be concerned, to take action in some way maybe, to pray certainly. The world out there certainly seems in many ways to feel like a significant threat. Last week we began our Advent sermon series in Judges chapter 6. God's people were suffering under the hands of the evil Midianites. They would let them plant their crops, but then they would come and steal everything that they were about to harvest. And so God's people had started to flee living in caves and mountains because the world around them had become such a threat to them. God's people had plenty of reason to be concerned, to be active, to pray. The world out there around them was certainly a threat. And after sending a prophet to remind them that it was their disobedience that got them into this spot, God graciously called a man to save his people. The man's name is Gideon. We were introduced to him last week. He is a cautious, hesitant man, but... God and his calling reassured Gideon that he would be with him. And by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 24, Gideon had built an altar and called it, The Lord is Peace. And that's exactly what God's people seemed to need at that time. The beaten down people needed to be rescued from the very threatening world out there. So today, as we finish up chapter 6, the question that should be burning in our minds is, will we see Gideon defeat the Midianites and set God's people free? The the, the little uh, kind of cycle that we've seen in the book of Judges, men have been studying this, is that as God's people sin, God brings about an oppressive nation to oppress them. And they get desperate and cry out to God for, God, for help, and so God sends a savior or a judge or a deliverer to come and rescue them. They have rest for a while, and then they turn back to sin once again. What's going to happen now, though, that God has called His Deliverer, the Savior of Israel at the time, is a man named Gideon. Is this when he rises up, then, to defeat the Midianites, the threat out there? Well, let's finish chapter 6 today. If you're able, go ahead and stand, and let's read Judges six twenty-five to 40 Let's pray first, God, we we do recognize. Maybe want to be more ignorant of it than we are, but we do recognize the real threat of a world out there that is sick with sin, suffering in many ways, in desperate need of a savior. God, I pray though that right now since we're in here that you would work in here in this church, in our families in our hearts by your Spirit, so that we might be built up to be more faithful servants of yours and ambassadors of Christ in the world out there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God's Word then from Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering and the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Beazrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. You can be seated. If it's helpful to you, go ahead and use in your bulletin the sermon notes page. And again, I would point out that life group guide that follows. Uh, If your life group is not meeting right now, or you're not in a life group, I'd encourage you uh, to do that together, like either on your own, with your spouse, with your family, whatever it might be, but go ahead and use that because we want to be people who don't just hear the word, but do it also, and that helps us with application. Well, you noticed as I read this, though, we've been waiting for Gideon to do what God said he was raising him up to do, that is, save the people of Israel from the Midianites, What we see happening as we start in verse 25 is that God calls Gideon to do something somewhat unexpected. Instead of, all right, if you're going to be the military commander that saves my people from the Midianites, then you need to go out and form an army. That's not what happens right away. Instead, Gideon's first mission is something much closer to home. In fact, he's called by God to make a sacrifice and to tear down Idols so close to home that they might be in his own backyard. They're idols that belong to his dad there in his hometown. And God tells him to tear those down. Gideon, mighty man of valor, raised up by God to save Israel from the hand of the evil Midianites, must first deal with the idols in his own family. So this is the situation they're in. God tells Gideon, before anything else, you need to go back to your hometown, to your dad's yard, or wherever this thing might be, and this altar to this false god needs to be torn down. This idol needs to be broken down. And in verse 27, we just heard this, that Gideon obeys. It says in verse 27, so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, we could emphasize that last part where Gideon's afraid, and so he does it by night instead of by day, say, oh, look at that fearful man. Note, though, God never told him to do it during the daytime, right? And is he maybe rightly to be afraid of the people of his town and his own family? Well, as we see a little bit later, yes. I would be afraid of them too. If you know that by cutting this down, they're going to kill me, I might also do it at a time where they don't see that I'm doing it. right? So I don't think the text is necessarily emphasizing his fear. It does make note of that, but it doesn't point it out as an act of disobedience. In fact, I think what the text is emphasizing is Gideon's obedience. He knew what might happen if he did this, but what does it say in verse 27? So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. I think what we need to emphasize here is not Gideon's fear, but Gideon's obedience even in the face of fear. So Gideon is obedient and goes and tears these idols down. And he does it at night so that nobody knows what happens, but you can't get away with anything in a small town, right? Verses 28 to 30. That night the Lord said to him, wait, verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? Now listen to this. After they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. They found the one who did it. Now listen to their response. As their idols are stripped away, we see just how attached to them they were. Verse 30, Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. They were so attached to these idols That they couldn't imagine having security or fertility or whatever they thought these gods would give them. I can't imagine life without them. And so with those things cut down, then the man who cut them down needs to be cut down. He needs to be killed. Pretty attached to their idols. And notice Gideon's father, Joash, standing up for him. Well, maybe not totally standing up for him. He doesn't say, you can't kill him, he's my son. Or, you can't kill him, he's right. He just says, well, let's make this a test. If Baal's really God, then can't Baal contend for himself? Like, if it's Baal's altar that was cut down, then let Baal defend himself. You guys don't need to go defending Baal, right? If he's all that powerful, that's his argument there in verse 31. And then we read this in verse 32. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. This is where Gideon gets a nickname that we're going to see uh, a couple more times as we walk through the rest of these chapters leading up to Christmas. Now, I want to keep going in the passage, but I also want to pause here for some application before even more at the end. I started the sermon by pointing out that there are battles to be fought out there in our strange, sin-sick world. We might feel like we right now are living in the time of the judges when, quote, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It feels like that oftentimes in the world we're living in now. There are reasons to be concerned, reasons to take action, and certainly reasons to pray. Yet, I think we also might learn something here about work that needs to be done closer to home first. Perhaps we, like Gideon, must first deal with idols in our own hearts, our own family, our own church. Perhaps, maybe we're all not all that much unlike ancient Israel, who often mixed worship of the one true God with all kinds of lesser gods. Think about it. How different are we than the world around us? If someone looked at our calendars, how we spent our time, if someone looked at our Credit card statements or bank statements, how we spent our money, would they conclude from looking at those things that we worship God and God alone? Or do our calendars and bank accounts, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, essentially look the same as everyone else in the world around us? Our idols might not be quite as easy to spot as an altar to Baal in the backyard or an Asherah pole in the front yard, but they are here. And they are just as deadly and in need of identification and destruction. We must see them and we must tear them down. When Gideon tore down the idols, the people wanted him to be put to death. That's one of the ways to identify what an idol might be in our life. Take it away from us for a time and see how we react. That might identify what is a potential idol. How much of our worth and happiness are tied to a list of things. you can, Yeah, they're up there. I'm going to read it for you if you can't read it from where you're at. My phone, take that away. See what happens. My stuff, we love our stuff. This is a time of year where we, we get more stuff. and We find, get more stuff for other people. We love stuff. Our health, I can easily become an idol. See what happens when it's taken away. We feel like all hope is lost. Our comfort, we love that. Our hobbies, our team, our independence, our freedoms, our rights, our money. You start taking some of those things away, and you see our reaction, and that might reveal more than we'd like to think about what it is that we idolize. Our family, our job, our reputation, our routine. What if those things are taken away? The people of Gideon's town? Wanted him killed because he took away their idols. They had been duped into believing that their security came from Baal, their fertility from Asherah, and whatever else they thought they could get what they need. Yes, in part from God, they would acknowledge that. But we also look for our satisfaction, our joy, in all sorts of other things as well. Church, possible that before we put all of our attention on trying to reverse the moral decay we see in the strange, sin-sick world around us, that it would be good also for us to identify and tear down some idols of our own. It's not just an Old Testament problem. All throughout the New Testament, we see the church being reminded that you need to take idols in your life seriously. So the very last verse in 1 John, 1 John five twenty-one. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 Corinthians ten fourteen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 has a long list of things to put to death, and at the end of that list is idolatry. Put it to death, as the Puritan John Owen is famous for saying, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So at the beginning of the chapter, we're introduced to this threat, the Midianites. Things were bad. Israel cried out. But remember that before Gideon was sent to be the military savior, God sent the prophet to remind them of their own disobedience that had gotten them into that spot. And then, yes, he does call Gideon. And yes, Gideon is called specifically to deal with the threat out there. To save Israel from the Midianites. But what we saw here in verses 25 to 32 is that before that takes place, Gideon needs to acknowledge hey, listen, it's our fault. Like, we're here because of what we've done, because of our mixture of worshiping the one true God along with worshiping these other idols. And so we see in verses 25 to 32, Gideon begin with the battle within, to start quite literally at home. But Midian's still a threat. The world out there is still a threat. So we will get to that. Look at verses 33 to 35. Remember, God's plan is to use this weak, hesitant, mighty man of valor to save his people from the hand of the Midianites. And what's happening by the time we get to verse 33 and following is they're starting to get ready for war. Verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together together. This is a foreboding army. And they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. They're not just living over here and coming to raid them every once in a while. Now the army is coming across the Jordan to be right there in their presence, ready to attack. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. And the Beazrites were called out to follow him. That's his own clan. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, that's his own tribe, and they too were called out to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, three of the other tribes, and they went up to meet them. So you see what's happening. The the enemy army is getting closer and ready to attack, and so God is raising up an army from within his people to follow Gideon. Notice that repetition there of following him. And so this is going to be necessary. Gideon's not going to be able to fight the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the armies of the east on his own. He's going to need an army, and God is now bringing an army to follow him. But I think most importantly, more than Gideon needing an army, what does he need? He needs what we see in verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord. This is what God had promised Gideon that his presence would be with him and this more than an army is what Gideon needs. Gideon needs to be clothed with the spirit of the Lord. It's only then that he then assembles the army, blows the trumpet, assembles the army and then we get to this interesting section the last section of the passage today where though the spirit of the Lord has clothed Gideon, though an army is now following Gideon Yet Gideon is still not quite assured that he should go ahead with what God has called him to do. So, in verses 36 to 40, you have what might be remembered by you from maybe your Sunday school class. Uh, I know that kids in our Sunday school classes, you're going through uh, such comprehensive sections of the Bible. Uh, We're not just kind of skimming over a few stories here and there. It's been a while since you've been in the book of Judges, kids. I recognize that. But do you remember what Gideon does with the fleece? Do you remember what he does? He, He lays it out. He wants to know for sure that God wants him to do what God had told him already to do. And so he says, If you will save Israel by my hand, in verse 36... Then he has this experiment, this test that he's going to lay out. I'm going to lay this fleece on the ground, and when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be covered with dew while the ground around it is dry. And when he wakes up in the morning, that's exactly what happens. And that's maybe more natural than what's going to happen next. A fleece would kind of absorb some of the the moisture That comes in the form of dew that we see in the morning. But look what happens then in verse 39. So that's one day. Now Gideon says to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. New experiment. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. So so now he's asking God, do the opposite of what you did the night before. This time I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. Notice that he starts, well, here's what it says in verse 40, and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Notice that Gideon The second time he asks God for this sign, he maybe rightfully acknowledges that God could be angry with him. Did you note that? Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Knowing, like, I'm not sure that this is the right thing to do. Maybe as a kid you've done that before. You can remember a time where, like, okay, I'm pretty sure, like, what I just did was not good. What I'm about, like, so... I'm, I'm going to go, and I'm going to kind of like say to, to mom or dad, okay, don't be angry. Right? So that's the way Gideon approaches God the second time. Is a, Don't be angry, but, but I'd really like to see a second sign. This time, just do the opposite of what you had done before. I think it also, though, is important to note that God doesn't rebuke Gideon for this, and does God do what Gideon asked? He does, right? The result, as we'll see next week, is that Gideon, having been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, assured by the Lord, is now ready to prepare the army to fight against Midian. And I want to look at application for this. We always want to see how does this point us to Jesus, and we'll get there in a moment, but I feel like I need to address this question because, because it's just, it kind of pops right out of the text here. This question is this, should I ask God for a sign? Like, I got a fleece, I got a blanket, should I, should I do this? Like, next time I have a big decision to make in my life, should I do the fleece thing? One principle to keep in mind. Narrative passages of the Bible, that is passages telling a story, are telling what happened. They're descriptive, not prescriptive. You get what that means? So, so, so this, is, this is telling us, here's what Gideon did, and that's not the same thing as telling us, here's what you should do. right? It's a description of what happened, not a prescription for what should be done. So we need to just keep that principle in mind anytime we're reading narrative in Scripture. So when we're unsure of what to do next, should we ask God for a sign? Well, Gideon did here, but that's not telling us that we should. Here's my short answer to that question. No. Really short answer. Should we we make a regular practice when we have a big decision to make? Should it be our practice that we ask God for something? We test God in this way. Okay, I want you to do this. Okay, now I want you to do this. I want to confirm this. Generally, I think the answer is no. Why? I think because of this. I think it gets dangerously close to doing what Jesus says not to do in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's even the language that's used here in Judges chapter 6, test. Also, we might have the question though, okay, so like if you shouldn't do it, then why did God not rebuke Gideon for doing it? And why did God do what Gideon asked? My answer to that question would be, well, I think it's because Gideon didn't have the Bible. Like as as Gideon needed to make a big decision, was this a big decision? Yes, he was about to put his own life at risk, and not only his own, but all these men who had left their families to come and serve in his army, their lives were going to be at risk. And he wanted to make sure that this is what God has actually called me to do, to go to war with these neighboring stronger armies in the name of the Lord. I want to be sure... But while we have 66 books of the Bible, the complete revelation of God's will, right? We have that. Gideon did not. At most, he would have had maybe access, though not a personal copy of, the first five books of the Bible. At most. Maybe the book of Joshua, right? So, so he can't just go to God's word and, and get confidence from God's word that this is God's will. So that's why I think God doesn't rebuke Gideon for doing it. Hebrews chapter 1, the first verses of Hebrews tell us this, that long ago at many times and in many ways, this would be one of the ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, a new way of God speaking to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, should we ask God for a sign? Again, you might disagree with me on this. I'm just trying to take from Scripture what I think is most clear and not, not trying to like insert something in here like, oh, I really want to do this. I think it's good. Or one time I did it and God answered. That doesn't mean that we should be always doing that, right? God answered Gideon here. I think it would be better for us to, as we have the whole Bible, as we have a church body around us, otherwise people with us, it would be good for us to do something that God promises He actually will do. We should ask God for wisdom. James 1.5, here's what God promises there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So there, there we have a promise from God about what God gives. So as you're facing a big decision in life, do you kind of like set up a, a, an experiment, a test, to, to try to get God's will like some magic eight ball that you shake up and it says yes or no, and then I know what to do? Or do we ask God, as we ground ourselves in his word and fellowship with his people, do we ask God, God, would you give us wisdom? And I think that's the right approach because we're told here to do that in James 1:5 and God gives wisdom. All right, so that was the quick aside, but I want to get at the application of this passage. We said last week that the point of this series is not to help us look at Gideon's life and have the application I always be well, be like Gideon here and don't be like Gideon there. That's not really why we're studying this portion of scripture. We believe what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 when he talked about how all Scripture points to him. And so I think this passage here points us to Jesus. Here's one way. Listen, just as God clothed Gideon with the Holy Spirit, spirit, so that Gideon could set the people free from oppression, so God promised to put his spirit on his man to set his people free. Think about this. We've got the account around Gideon happening in about the year 1100 B.C. and about 400 years later, we hear from the prophet Isaiah this. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is what God's people needed. Yes, in Gideon's time and in Isaiah's time, and 700 years later in Jesus' time and today in our time. So we shouldn't be surprised that at the very beginning of his ministry, we read the account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. But then we read of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We don't hear much about what happens in Jesus' life. Get that one episode when he's 12 years old at the temple, but then his public ministry doesn't begin until he's about 30 years old. And we read about that in Luke chapter four. Go ahead and flip to Luke chapter four. You might not be surprised that when Jesus comes into the synagogue on a Sabbath day, you know, let's just read it. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Right? It's not a coincidence. That just you know, happened to be the reading for the day. So the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He uh, Imagine being there. Jesus unrolls the scroll and found the place. He's got to get all the way to the bottom of the scroll. Chapter 61 found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads it, and they've read that multiple times before. They know one is coming who will do these things. The Spirit of the Lord will be on the man of God to set people free. They're waiting for that day. Jesus reads that reading, and they hear it again for the how manyth time? But then this, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is has been fulfilled in your hearing mic drop right that, that's what we see this is what's happening the spirit of the Lord is upon me I'm the one that you've been waiting for Gideon clothed with the spirit of the Lord to set people free from oppression 400 years later Isaiah is saying we're still waiting For the one who is clothed with the Spirit of the Lord to set people free from oppression. 700 years later, Jesus born, laid in a manger at the very beginning of his ministry. What does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is the one who has been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord to set the people of God free. That's why when the angel comes to Joseph to tell him that his betrothed Mary was pregnant, the angel said... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is what Jesus came to do. Yes, Gideon came to set the people free, to save them from the hand of the oppressor of the Midianites, but Jesus has come to set his people free from our oppressor sin. And this is good news. So the second part of that application is pretty simple. It is that, that we should follow Him and be set free forever. The Father sent the Son on purpose. The Father sent the Son to set us free, to save us from our sins. We started out today singing, the very first words that we sang together today. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in Thee. We need to be set free. Sin is not just a problem out there in our strange, sin-sick world. It's a problem in here. We're sinners by nature and by choice, and we are born, the Bible says, as slaves to sin. So a simple question of application would be, have you been set free from the oppression of sin. What are you waiting for? Just as the people in Israel followed the man, right, that's what happened. After it was evident, this man has been clothed with the Spirit of God, then the people followed him, and that's how they would be saved from the Midianites. So too, we are invited to follow the man sent by God, clothed with His Spirit to set us free from the oppression of sin. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Church, we must follow Jesus, the One clothed by the Spirit of God and sent by God on purpose to set the people free. And so Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 23, you might know well, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Kids that are in Awana, you've you've memorized that almost every year, I think. You just keep coming back to that one, and that's a good one to come back to. Maybe we're not as familiar with what comes right before that, though, in verse 22. Paul writing to people who are following Jesus, people who have been set free through faith in Jesus. Here's what he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's our hope. That's what we're aiming for, that we Born as slaves to sin, will remain in sin until we trust in Jesus, the one who was sent by God to set us free from our sin. You're not following Jesus invite you to do that, to acknowledge your sin before Him, to acknowledge that you're just, yes, in sin, you're doing what you really want to do, but as the Holy Spirit comes upon you to convict you of sin, you're recognizing, that's not what I really want. God, you've given me suddenly a new heart and a new desire, and so God, thank you that Christ has paid the price in full for my sin, which we're going to remember here in a moment as we take communion. Thank You that You have sent Your Son to set me free from the oppression of sin that leads to death, and that instead You have given me the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus my Lord. Thank You, God, for that. Let's pray and prepare for communion. Oh, Father, we, we are so undeserving. We were slaves to sin. Undeserving of Your mercy, but out of Your great love for us, You sent Your Son to set us free, to save us from our sins. And we are so grateful for Your love. Thank You for saving us that we might be Your slaves, slaves to righteousness. Help us to be obedient as we identify and tear down idols by Your Spirit. Thank you that we can do that, knowing that we are secure in your love, that we don't need what the idols that we have in our lives offer us. We know that what they can provide is so temporary, but what you provide us is eternal. And so help us to be people who tear down those idols, who flee from idolatry, who put it to death by your Spirit, motivated by your glory, with your power that is at work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take communion.